Welcome to On The Map, taking you into the world of trade, hosted by me, Josie Pagani, for the New Zealand Herald and Newstalk ZB. Trade war between the United States and China, tariffs are back, the global trade system's faltering as the giants roar, but we're also seeing new trade deals in our region. The TPP, renamed the worst acronym in history, the CPTPP, has been agreed between 11 countries and ratified. Preparing to leave Europe, the UK wants a trade deal with us, and ironically, so does Europe. So, are we witnessing trade or tragedy? I'm joined now by the New Zealand Herald's business editor-at-large, Liam Dan, economist-at-large, Shamabil Akub, and founder and former CEO of Zero, Rod Jury. Shamabil, is the world economy in good shape? It's on a knife edge. Um, you know, we've seen pretty strong growth over the last decade since the global financial crisis, but we're really starting to see the effects of the trade war and a general slowdown really starting to come through. Do you think we're headed for another financial crisis? You know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So we're probably going to have some kind of a downturn, but we don't know where it's going to come from. The trade war's taken a lot longer to take effect than we thought. So we're seeing the slowdown in China, but really what we're much more worried about right now is the slowdown we're seeing in places like Europe, which has really struggled. Ah, that's interesting. So we've got all these challenges. We've got uh, trade wars, uh, and not just between the US and China, right? We've got one looming with Japan and Korea. We've got trade wars, we've got uh, Brexit in the EU, we've got a slowdown in China, and we've got a breakup of the international rules-based system. Liam, what's the worst of those for us <laughs> in New Zealand? Well, it's funny because, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Shamabil. It's, we're, we're seeing it take a little bit longer. It's, it's slowing, it's slowing, it's slowing. Uh, it's just starting to hit New Zealand. Initially, you know, the, the commodities like, um, you know, beef, protein, you know, uh, dairy, uh, it's been quite strong. So our, our terms of trade have held up well. There's been some substituting of, um, uh, you know, US soy and that sort of thing. So there's, there's, it hasn't been disastrous for us uh, initially, but what, but the sort of sinking lid on the whole global economy and China in particular does start to take an effect and that's uh, starting to get serious. Of course, it's a weird scenario right now anyway. You've got stock markets still booming and, you know, there's this sort of weird dynamic where bad news corresponds to lower interest rates and markets get very excited. So when we talk about global financial crisis, I tend to look at the stock market and, and think, how can that keep going forever? But, um, you know, um, I think, you know, there's a lot of, lot of focus on that trade war between the US and China and hope that, you know, it, it will get resolved to some extent and, and that we can see, you know, global growth rebound. But are uh, we seeing a, a rash of these trade wars starting? So now we've got Japan and Korea. Again, it's faux national security reasons. Yeah, I mean, it goes hand in hand with the, the populist nationalist sort of uh, revival we've seen in the past few years. It seems to play well with them um, uh, politically uh, at the moment, unfortunately, I guess, if you're if you're a believer in the in the power of uh, of trade and to, to sort of grow economies. Um, and certainly, you know, from a New Zealand perspective, it's worrying. Uh, it, it, you know, that the, the uh, individual uh, country by country trade wars, and also the sort of um, damage to the WTO and the whole uh, sort of uh, ordered system of trade in the world. Is it a worry, Rod? What difference do trade deals make to you and your business? For technology companies, you know, we tend to move pretty quickly. So, we, you know, we're obviously concerned about the primary sector and making sure, you know, that's where I think these big trade agreements have a big impact. I think for uh, technology um, our people, we're more concerned about whether we can get stuff on our Netflix or Apple TV or not. That's where trade wars 
really hit us, but we are seeing a lot of um, of kind of new global rules. There's been a lot of uh, global work around privacy, a lot of work around open banking and and things like that. And we're also seeing the introduction of new sort of tax regimes uh, through Asia. And all of those things are are external events that drive the uh, the roadmaps of many uh, technology companies. So that's the kind of impact we see. What we are kind of um, observing more broadly, though, is, is this full-on technology war now between the U.S. and China. We're seeing the um, internet starting uh, to bifurcate. You know, Facebook still can't uh, provide service inside China, and that looks more and more likely to be blocked. Um, for the global technology providers, we're kind of our strategy has been to fast follow the big U.S. platform providers. So, you know, whenever we're talking to Amazon or Google or Microsoft, we're asking them what are they doing um, in terms of putting servers inside China so we can deploy our software there. But there, but because of this war, they uh, they don't seem to be making progress. So um, we we're finding that um, the Chinese market really isn't isn't open isn't as open to uh, pure uh, technology companies. And we're definitely seeing you know with the example of the five G, where where we are. Um, uh, really the meat in the sandwich there. We've had uh, the West, uh, Australia and the US telling us we can't deploy um, Huawei on our network and then we've got China who are acting uh, very actively and very uh, in a very uh, coordinated fashion, you know, um, uh, slowing down people coming in, coming in to spend money on, um, on education, on tourism. So it's a very interesting time. So Trade deals potentially do help, don't they? I mean, the CPTPP does try to have consistency around regulations, around data access, around stuff that does affect e-commerce. Is is the CPTPP helping? No, all that stuff's sort of moving so slowly that there, there's more um, individually focused things which are which are happening in a, in a in a much faster basis. So things like privacy. Uh, GDPR and, and a lot of the open banking stuff that's um, uh, that's already been implemented in the UK and is spreading around the West. Those are the things that really affect technology companies at the moment. Gosh, so if, if, if trade deals aren't helping our biggest businesses, Shamabil, what why are we doing them? Well, <clears throat> because a huge amount of our exports are still goods-based exports and they do, in fact, need very strong, coordinated and easy-to-follow rules. Um, and not only that, we also provide with uh, things like the WTO and trade deals means of dealing with problems, right? At the moment, when you've got two countries that are butting heads, there is no way to kind of resolve that because your own institutions like your courts can't go to the other country and solve it. That's where WTO and other things have been really helpful in terms of providing a platform for us to engage with rules that everybody understands. And, of course, those rules are changing over time. But and I think that's where the biggest challenge is for New Zealand is – Will we have, one, that access to markets, and two, whether we will have that access to things like the, uh, you know, the regimes to be able to deal with problems as they come up? So this is a real problem. If trade deals are about access to markets and managing disputes between countries, let alone between corporates and countries, investors and countries, what do we do if the WTO is falling apart, Liam? <laughs> Try to stay out of trouble. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we have no clout uh, as a nation this size, so without a WTO, that's problematic if someone decides to bully us. Um, but I guess, 
you know, sort of uh, concurrently to that, we've, we've, we're trying to maintain these good relationships individually as well. So we've, we've certainly got a big stake in the WTO process, but then we're doing our own bilateral or, or um, multilateral agreements, which hopefully um, uh, will, will have their own sort of system. So as well as the, uh, the um, CTP. P P. Yeah, why is this <laughs> agenda so full of acronyms? You know, we, we've got um, things like RCEP, which is sort of like a, a, an upgraded um, a, a version of the ASEAN relationship. Um, uh, we're doing the China upgrade. Um, we're looking at South America. Um, we're keen on uh, Europe is progressing quite well, and, and obviously Britain has said they're keen. Uh, UK, if and when they uh, achieve a Brexit, and we can actually start talking. Um, so, so we we keep doing those things, I guess. But um, so yeah. we've got a B plan. Well, I, I think you run both at once, and and you know New Zealand's done quite well doing that. But it just just it is it is a concern because we don't uh, have the clout if if push comes to shove if there isn't a WTO. Would you say basically multilateral, I mean regional trade yeah. deals are better for us than bilaterals because it gives us the combination of different countries coming together? It's hard to say because they're not directly comparable. I mean, our bilateral is, is China, so it's it's amazing, you know, the influence that that's had. And then, you know, you get such a, um, you know, it, it, just a, a subtle shift in ch- Chinese uh, consumer behaviour or whatever towards New Zealand has had an enormous impact here. And you probably we probably don't feel it so much from the, the ASEAN stuff. But, it, you know, it's, it's certainly... Um, significant and um you know just anything that uh, like the reason being you know just for the the fonteras and the the meat exporters and that sort of thing so so different area to where rod's talking about but that traditional base is still such an important base of our economy um and that's where they they just get immediate tangible benefits from from tariffs going down and um and uh better quotas and that sort of thing so we know that the investor states disputes um, clause in the ISDS clause in, in, in the original TPP was such a um, controversial issue. But the whole concept of corporates being able to sue governments if those governments do something against the interests of, that, of, of those investors, in principle, we should be allowing that, shouldn't we? Yeah, it seems to terrify uh, some some groups in the population, the idea that that, that, that can happen. I mean, it, 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 in my view, that it's always there. You can accept that um, if push comes to shove, you always are a sovereign nation. So you, you still, you know, have, have um, some clout there as a, as a, as a sovereign nation to um, uh, make, make sort of nationalistic calls if, if, you know, if you have to. But so I think it's, I think it's reasonable to accept that. Uh, what do you think, Shamabel? What do you think that we, in principle, we need to have some mechanism Otherwise, how do we attract investors? Well, it's not like we have a shortage of investors. So, you know, it's kind of like, is there really a big problem here? And I think the problem becomes more of an issue when you see states taking unilateral action to, I guess, create problems and tensions in the system. Um, I don't think New Zealand should have much to fear from it. Our system of government has got so many checks and balances. But I suspect our businesses would have much greater cause to use a system like that because we operate in a lot of countries where the rule of law and the institutions are not nearly as strong. So I'm not nearly as fearful um, as long as we have very good checks and balances and make sure the actual system of dispute resolution is well governed and has very clear rules and enforcement around it. And do you think the clause in the CPTPP for investors' disputes is sufficient? Like it, it allows for greater regulation 
Well, until governments we see it being tested, it's hard to tell, isn't mm. it? So, you know, the, the thing is, the, something like the ISDS is not going to be used frequently. It's going to be a measure of last resort, and that's what it's there for. Um, we're not seeing Facebook or Google coming out and saying we're going to use this system to try and, you know, beat you over the head. Um, we are going to see that when something really terrible happens, I think, within businesses in certain countries. So until it's been, been tested, I don't know if we're going to get there, but I still want us to have something like the WTO as a backstop to be able to resolve these disputes. You know, ISDS is not, in my mind, the perfect substitute for something like the WTO, which is recognized by most countries around the world as the place you go to for a dispute resolution. That's right, and the, and, and the, the place where your investor disputes get sorted out is actually in a different mechanism to the WTO, which a lot of people confuse, don't they? Yeah, and I think that's problematic. I think um, we, we need to have a system that's coordinated, and I, I think that is what we're talking about at the moment, is all the stuff that's happening in global trade right now is that the coordination is falling apart. You know, pretty much that consensus that had formed following the Second World War is about how do we bring all of this together? How do we get more integration? How do we get more of our systems to connect up? And what we're seeing now is this piecemeal approach to kind of dismantling it over time. It's not going to happen overnight, but I think that is the biggest, biggest risk. And Liam mentioned this. You know, one of the things that really matters for New Zealand is that even though we are a tiny dot, a margin of error for most countries when it comes to their trade and tourism, we get a relatively high, um, I guess, um, influence when it comes to formalized systems like the WTO. So it's given us an ability to have a stage, it's given us an ability to talk about stuff and influence policy. If the WTO fails, I don't think we'll have that ability going forward. Rod, uh, Shamabil just said earlier that he thinks there's enough investment coming into New Zealand, but is it true that a company like Zero, I mean our capital markets were not big enough to keep Zero here, so you have to go offshore if you get too big in New Zealand? Is that a problem? And, uh, and that's a really exciting opportunity. So, so the, other, the other thing that's really exciting that kind of leads into that, or the thing that's really interesting about these big central trade deals and thinking about the kind of long-term global impacts is uh, global taxation. So small countries like New Zealand, a greater and greater sh um, a share of our consumers' wallet is going to these big global multinational companies that have scale. So the issue of... Uh, corporate taxation of these uh, global entities is really interesting and that's something where we don't have enough mass to influence uh, influence that on our own so working together with a whole lot of other countries to make that fair um, is something which is really useful and something we need to be working on uh, very urgently at the moment but what that's also meaning is if uh, one of the one of the good things about um, Australia in New Zealand, we've had compulsory savings. I think there's something like two trillion dollars now in Australian super, and um, and you know what they've sort of done over the last sort of ten, fifteen years is is they've given that money out to out of fund managers who will go and chase growth all around the world, uh, end up investing in Amazon, Google, Microsoft, um, Alibaba, these companies that don't pay uh, domestic tax, and and companies that you could argue are also creating issues with domestic employment. So what that means is um, in, in both New Zealand and Australia, there's a huge amount of money that's looking for a home and with interest rates getting less and less, the opportunity now to do a domestic investment is super exciting. So um, you know when you've got when you've got two two trillion dollars worth of super funds sitting in Australia, the opportunity to you know go and spend a few billion dollars building local infrastructure that can return, you know, five percent or something like that is very attractive. So 
out of all of the out of all of these global changes, there's some real opportunities now to fund um, things that can actually um, move the needle over the medium to long term. So less mm. dependent on foreign capital. Well, no, we well, um, I think we're very dependent on Australian capital uh, because they've had that compulsory savings for so long. But 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 Australian capital would see uh, New Zealand as its uh, domestic market. So they are absolutely looking for infrastructure and for growth opportunities as well. It doesn't really matter too much where the capital comes from. What's exciting is there is plenty of capital that's looking for good ideas. Not to mention the Chinese capital in this. <clears throat> where it becomes a little bit political, but obviously um, if you look yep. at the China's ambitions for the Belt and Road and New Zealand potentially being in that and uh, Chinese banks sort of sitting on the sidelines in New Zealand, there's there's, there's masses of um, potential for Chinese investment in New Zealand. New Zealand just kind of has to have a discussion about how far we want to go in terms of um, inviting that in because it's, um, you know, there, there are political issues about um, the balance between US and uh uh, the, the diplomacy between US and China at the moment and that sort of thing, but certainly there's some, um, I think there's a, a sense that if we were to um, uh, <laughs> open ourselves our up completely, up. they're ready to roll. Yeah. Well, that's in, there's the nub of it, though, isn't it? Have we frightened off foreign investors under this government? I don't think so. Um, you know, aside from not buying second-hand houses, we're still seeing significant amounts of capital inflows into New Zealand. And those capital inflows, despite all the chat about China, still comes from our tradition, traditional partners, right? It's mainly coming from Australia, the US, UK, and Europe, and places like Singapore and those kinds of places. So, you know, <clears throat> it's true that there is uh, emerging markets are growing, but in reality, most of our funding still comes from those kind of very traditional OECD big countries. And also most of the money that comes to New Zealand, in fact, doesn't come in as FDI, which companies like Zero and others would, would, would benefit from. It tends to come in the form of funding for a banking system, right? So then we, you and I can buy second-hand houses from each other for exorbitant prices. So there are some bigger <laughs> issues around our domestic policies rather than global policies around global funding. New Zealand is a very attractive place to invest because... We've got decent returns. We've got institutions and rules that are really good. It's a law-abiding country. All, of, all, all those things are really, really good. It's just that I think there is not a shortage of capital per se, but it's more around what do we want to do with this capital. And will distance always be our destiny? <laughs> is that always going to be a problem? Well, I think it's our advantage. Um, right. You know, and 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 this is kind of chopping a nose off despite our face. So, so, so the restrictions on people coming in to buy houses that played out very well. Uh, politically, but it obviously hasn't fixed the housing crisis. And certainly, what I've seen, you know, over, over summer in the Hawkes Bay, we had a whole lot of um, of technology people down who who would love to buy houses and stay. You know, these are people that don't consume any services. They hardly use any roads. They don't use the hospitals. They don't use the education system. They pay GST on everything. They create opportunities. But but what most importantly, if they come down and spend some time here, they do, um, you know, work with the local. Our community, they make connections back, they invest, they're keen to invest because they want to spend time down here. So, I mean, that would be an easy thing to fix. You could do it in a much more controlled way. You know, we could create some areas or some style of properties where, um, you know, we can welcome these people to stay here. And, you know, in a time where the world is getting more fragmented and more tribal, you know, why, do, why don't we make it easier for people to spend time here and we can demonstrate our values, export those by having, you know, those, those sort of people here who, who help educate, support, and invest New Zealand business people. What what does a perfect trade deal have to have today? I mean, for a business like yours, Rod, you're looking for consistency around the regulations in terms of 
border cro- data crossing border borders. Yeah, what, I think that's happening that anyway. I think it is as. Um, Shamabi was saying it's much more about the um, other primary industries, those uh, commodities that really makes the big impact. And then I think the other stuff that affects the tech companies isn't happening inside those trade trade deals. It's happening on a much faster basis on um, with uh, specific issues. So I don't think we're massively disadvantaged by that. Even intellectual property has changed. When you're you know now building services in the cloud, you actually control your technology, and, and it's much harder for people to copy. So, um, you know, certainly, um, the content side is really interesting because we're not getting the advantage of, of, um, you know, all the content that people expect to have all around the world, which makes us seem a little bit of a backwater. But in terms of, um, you know, trade, I don't think the, the technology industries, um, are suffering too much at all. Rod, do they, um, <clears throat> do you think that the favored nation status sort of, does that help the tech companies at all? Like, so the China FTA, um, there may not be specific things around tariffs and 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 uh, things, but um, you know, just that that sense of um, looking to each other and and, and the and the favoured nation status does that does that benefit the tech companies much, or is that just not 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 figure? Well, in software, it's really hard to you know it's really hard to operate in China. So in the old desktop world, when you installed software, you know you you could sell that, and and the expectation was that. It would probably get copied in the in the cloud business. You've got so much infrastructure on the big three sort of U.S. platform providers we talked about earlier, and until they have access into China, it's really hard for us to do that extra investment for that market. So I think we're all just waiting. So there's there's so the sort of software world doesn't really get to play in China just yet. I think the real opportunity is um, being that bridge between East and West. You know, we are we we do have um, a unique opportunity with. Um, you know, having a free trade agreement with China and, and, you know, still having good relationships with the US. So, you know, rather than being sort of passive about the stuff, more actively connecting them is, is probably where the opportunity lies. But you kind of, you want trade deals in the future to at least have some consistent approaches to things like privacy. So I'm, I'm thinking of the EU with the General Data Protection Regulation, yet another acronym, the GDPR. Now, I mean, that's a big, Thing for New Zealand e-commerce businesses, isn't it? Around uh, yeah, but know, that's already happened. So, so it's already independent, happened, but- independent of a trade deal, there's you know things like that. There's things like open banking, which if you're going to provide service into those markets, you just have to do. So that that all that sort of stuff is happening at a layer above the trade agreements, and you just have to move on that stuff really quickly. So when we sort of plan out a roadmap for the next two or three years, we think we've got enough resources, but then you'll find that uh, some regulation and part of our target market changes. And as a as a uh, global software provider, then you've got to divert resources or get further investment to make those changes. But that that is happening outside of trade agreements. Maybe trade agreements do um, unify a bit of that, but they tend to happen at a much slower time horizon than the tech, tech companies are working on. Shamabil, how, how wide or narrow should trade deals be, do you think? Because there's a big debate. Should they include labour rights, uh, environmental standards and so on, as the CPTPP does, or should they be quite narrow like, like RCEP? I think they are going to become increasingly broad, especially when we do them with rich countries. 
So, for example, when we do it with Europe, I expect to see very high standards being set in terms of what they expect from us in return, including things like labor rules, privacy, all those other bits and pieces. But when we're doing trade deals with emerging markets in Asia, I, I would not expect to see those kinds of demands because they would quite often not favor those countries. So I think it's a little bit horses for courses. I think there's the evolution of uh, trade deals. They are changing over time and the nature is very different depending on the partners who are involved. So to expect a very high quality trade deal to include very emerging economies is not realistic. You know, that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for market access. They're looking for um, a, a beginning of a relationship that will grow over time. But it does help to build the social license for trade deals, doesn't it? If it is actually enforceable, it's got enforceable labour standards, enforceable environmental standards, that's a good thing, isn't it? If you can get people around the table to do that. So I don't think you'd go to an emerging market in Asia and expect people to get away a European-style trade deal that has labor requirements that they cannot necessarily enforce in their own country because their jurisdiction, their law and order situation probably just won't allow it. So I think there are, it's, it's part of the evolution of trade, and I think um, the trade deals we're going to see over time will be quite separate in those the ones that we see with those very rich countries are going to be very complex, very big deals. They're going to take years to negotiate, whereas they will see probably more bilateral, even regional ones, where they will be more based around market access and tariffs and those traditional kinds of things. And both are okay. They are part and parcel of the kinds of progress that we want to see in trade. Because, to be fair, even though global trade is very strong, there are still many barriers to global trade today. Trade is political. I mean, it always has been, <clears throat> but more so today, right? Mm, absolutely. I mean, that's why I, 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 mean, I agree with Shamabil. It's The idea of a consistency across all our trade deals is, sounds nice in theory, but really one of the strengths of New Zealand is, you know, so, you know, you've got ASEAN, you know, you've got something, so a country like Bangladesh and a country like Germany, you're just not going to have the same level of um, consumer, um, you know, uh, protection and rules uh, in those two countries. So we're dealing with, you know, such a wide variety of countries that we, you know, New Zealand's strength has been to be flexible, uh, to be nimble, to, to leave things uh, maybe a little undefined. And not pick sides. Not pick sides. I mean, the, the US-China thing is, is a classic example, and we're just going to have to continue to maintain this sort of, you know, very delicate situation as things unfold because, um, you know, it's just too important. Both of those relationships are too important. So, you, so things are left unsaid and undefined, and um, it's, it's perhaps not that satisfying to not be able to see a sort of grand unified theory of trade, but um, uh, I think it's to New Zealand's advantage to stay very flexible and to be, you know, we, and we have been very good at this and, and to continue to be good at this to sort of, as you say, horses for courses and um, maybe have a, a, you know, there's a lot of complexity to all these different agreements and it requires a lot of um, effort and resource to sort of maintain them all and keep the different wheels spinning, but uh, uh, that is what is, um, you know, working for us, yeah. One final question on the politicization of trade i suppose when you've got you know the us using national security as an excuse to you know stop exports of steel from new zealand or um uh, you know american companies mm -hmm. sending components into huawei um imagine that in new zealand i'm just trying to have a scenario of where you might have for example Fonterra, let's say has a dispute with a country that's doing something bad they've broken the <coughs> rules of an agreement and they have to come back to our government to, to negotiate some kind of result, some kind of deal in that, because there is no longer the ability for corporates to sue mm. uh, governments. 
that's that's really problematic, isn't it? Because you imagine if you had our government say, well, okay, we'll help you, but only if you clean the rivers and only if you sell organic milk. I think the broader part. A point there, Josie, is that if you look at even across the West, our values are quite different to Australia and the US, and they're some of our closest trading partners. So one thing that that's very clear when you have you know staff and you operate all around the world is we have you know some very intense values which play out uh, domestically. So obviously the environment is a strong one, but also equality. You know that comes through as a value uh, in New Zealand far more than Australia, and obviously far far more. Um, than uh, the US. So when when you've got a local people trying to uh, negotiate these trade deals, you know, they have to, you know, they're trying to bridge and make compromises, but then they've got to come back and sell um, and sell something uh, domestically, which is outside of those of those core values. And we saw that over the last 10 years, you know, with the, um, you know, as we've had all those big marches about TPP, they're all about those those key values that we have. And trade deals are absolutely where that compromise needs to happen. So it's an, it's an incredibly hard sell for us to violate our values and therefore domestically trade starts to get a bad name. And that, you know, was something that's, uh, you know, ha- has been said and gets talked about, you know, with people over the last five years, which drives you then back to this kind of nationalistic agenda again. Well, it would be we'd be stuck if we couldn't uh, trade with people who didn't share our values. I'm thinking of uh, uh, other countries where we might have very uh, different views. There's almost no one we don't (laughs) trade with, apart from the ones that you know, uh, uh, Iran or North Korea, and you know, I think there was there was trade to Syria last year. So you know, (laughs) yeah. So I mean, yeah, it's New Zealand is very pragmatic about these things, and 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 across parties too. I mean, you know, so when you see Labor get in power, they're, they're they're Still a pragmatic trading party, uh, I'd say. Even flexible, pragmatic, yeah. and nimble. Um, okay, guys, thanks very much. That was Rod Jury, Liam Dan, and Shamabil Ekub. And if you want to comment or send any feedback for me, Josie Pagani, or the panelists, please do so. Email me at josiepagani at gmail dot com, or you can get me on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at Josie Pagani. Hosted and produced by me, Josie Pagani. Audio engineered by James Irwin. Technical support by Jason Pine. Executive producer Francis Cook. Editor Andrew Laxon. Made with the support from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade.